Morning, everybody. Um, Want to let you guys know where we're going. We're in a series right now entitled The Waters, the Wilderness, and the World to Come. We're going to finish this series in the next four weeks. And then uh, reminding you guys that Darren has currently been put in front of you as an elder candidate. And so we hope to install him right at the end of this series. And so at the end of this series, Darren prayerfully will be able to give his I'm Pastor Darren first sermon uh, at Taproot Church. After that, Pastor Jim is going to take a Sunday morning. He's going to walk us through kind of a State of the Union address, where we're at financially, where we're at numerically, where we're at building-wise, just generally where we are as a church and take us through some scriptural principles and a theology of where we want to be going as far as financial giving, as far as growing, as far as multiplying, sending out church plants. Then we're going to get into the book of Galatians. And we're going to spend a good long time in the book of Galatians. After that, we're going to go to the book of Habakkuk and we're going to study suffering and the questions of confusion in this world. After that, we're going to go to the books of first and second Corinthians in a series called sinners called saints, sinners called saints. So for this morning, we're going to be in Genesis chapter one. Again, another technical morning this morning. This will be our last morning doing this really kind of nerdy work in the Hebrew text as we're developing the foundation to take us through the entirety of the Bible. I'll read the scripture, Genesis 1, 1 through 2. I'll close the reading of God's word by saying, this is the word of the Lord, to which we as his people respond prayerfully. Speak, Lord, your servants here. Genesis 1, verse 1 and verse 2. In the beginning... God created the heavens and the earth. The earth was without form and void, and darkness was over the face of the deep, and the Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters. This is the word of the Lord. Grab your seats, and as we do every Sunday, we'll pray. Lord, I just pray this morning by the power of the Holy Spirit that these sessions in Genesis 1-1 and 1-2 would be helpful in the day-in, day-out rush of life we gather here on the first day of the week, Sunday, to celebrate your resurrection, to sing songs of victory and praise to your name. And to open the scriptures, to be bolstered and encouraged. And sometimes, Lord, we can be lost in the details of the greater picture. And so I do pray this morning that this time, looking at these details in this text, would develop for us a helpful perspective, not only on Genesis 1 and 2 and science and the scriptures, but Father, help us to read the whole Bible and to hear from you, and to receive from you, and accept the grace that you have given us in revealing yourself to us. And so, Father, I ask for your help this morning. Again, in sermons and sessions like this, we can teach the technical details of the text, but only you, Holy Spirit, only you, the creator of these souls, the creator and the maker of these people, can commune with them in their hearts and transform them and love them and assure them and comfort them. So do that work this morning. We ask you to do it in Jesus' name. And all of God's people said, 
Amen. Let's start with a little review just to keep us on par with where we're at. I'm presenting a view on Genesis 1 and Genesis chapter 2 following a Hebrew scholar named John Salehamer and his little book entitled Genesis Unbound. So by way of review, I want to remind us that every view we take on Genesis, whether it's young earth creationism, whether it's old earth theories, whether it's gap theories, whether we have adopted evolutionary theory as the means by which God brought about life, but God used evolution, which is called theistic evolution or particular creationism as they're now trying to change some of the vernacular and the debates and the conversations. Every view that we hold is going to have questions surrounding it, unanswered questions surrounding it. God has left cosmology. Cosmology is the study of origins and eschatology. Eschatology is the study of end events. Our God has left those areas of study cloudy. And so our father is not surprised at us when we have unresolved questions around how did life begin? How did life come about? When did it happen? How did it happen? And God is not surprised at us when we have unresolved questions around what happens when it all ends. Because he has purposefully left these areas unclear. And the things that he has wanted to make very clear for us as his people, he has. Now, this creates, when we understand this and embrace this, what I just call a theological humility. We don't take a stand on things that are cloudy with great conviction, pointing the fingers at others that disagree with us saying, you're wrong, I'm right, because we have a theological humility that recognizes there's some cloudiness around these particular areas of teaching in the Bible. Theological humility leads to church unity, church unity. This means that a young earth creationist is humble enough with his position that he can sit next to a theistic evolutionist and still be on the same team saying, we're fighting for the same cause. We're going after the same goal. And we both recognize together that there is cloudiness in both of our positions, but we have Christ at the center of us. And so we don't divide unnecessarily from one another because of the theological humility that God has given us in this questioning, kind of cloudy, unresolved place that he's left us with these areas of study. We are all on a journey of discovery together, and it's a joyful journey of discovery. So what I'm doing in this series is first and foremost, in this time, setting up a particular position on Genesis that I have come to adopt, reminding you that my personal level of certainty, 10 being I'll die for this, one being it could with the smallest wisp of wind be gone. This morning, I'm at about a three again. And it wavers between a two and a four. I've never been above a five in my level of certainty on my perspectives on Genesis. And so that level of certainty creates theological humility that keeps the church unified. And it also gives us the opportunity to present Genesis to the world around us and not be embarrassed about it. We're able to say, yeah, we've got a lot of questions. 
But we can also ask them the same questions. How have you resolved the origins of life? <laughs> How have you resolved what happens after we die? And they're going to say, uh, well, I got a lot of questions about that. Right. We're in the same playing field, my friend, walking by faith, a spiritual journey together. So if you're here this morning and you're not a believer, you're not a Christian, you're investigating Christianity or you were dragged here with a friend kicking and screaming, you're welcome here and you're going to be very comfortable here. You're in a crowd of confused Christians. You're just not a confused Christian with us yet. (laughs) By way of review, this particular position that we're looking at, last week I laid out the details of verse 1. Today we're going to look at verse 2. Let me remind you of them very briefly, please. Verse 1. Zalhammer's contention, reminding you that he's, a, he's an ancient Hebrew scholar. He's one of the premier experts in the world on ancient Semitic languages. And he has gone back to the text. And Zalhammer's primary driving, I guess, motivation is he is saying, we need to look at Genesis like Moses and his original readers looked at Genesis, not like modern scientists. We need to divorce as best we can our contemporary influences from interpreting the way we look at Genesis 1 and read it like an ancient Hebrew would. And so that is what Selhammer has done in his book, Genesis Unbound. So last week we looked at verse 1. In the beginning, reminding you now, is a Hebrew word, barashit, barashit. In the beginning does not mean back to point A, starting point in the Hebrew, but that word is a specific word that connotes or designates an undetermined amount of time, an unmeasured undetermined amount of time the beginning in the beginning in the hebrew moses is saying there was an undetermined amount of time it could have been six seconds it could have been six days it could have been sixty thousand years moses is saying that in the beginning god did what he created the heavens and the earth we looked last week at how the hebrews would use heavens and earth as a merism a merism is two contrasting ideas that connote or that delineate an entire spectrum of things. So in our language, we use words or ideas like, he took care of that business, he took care of the issue, lock, stock, and barrel. Lock, stock, and barrel is not referring to a gun. Lock, stock, and barrel is a way of us saying he took care of everything. So heavens and earth, actually better translated skies and land, skies and land is a Hebrew merism. So what Moses is saying in Genesis 1-1 is, in the beginning, in this undetermined amount of time, six seconds, six days, 60,000 years, 13.82 billion years, as the European Space Society, Planka, just released their newest information just a couple days ago and their newest findings on how old the universe... However, however long it was, God created everything. Everything. Heavens and earth, skies and land includes the ice ages. It includes the movement of tectonic plates, whether that is fast or slow. That includes, for those of us who have that unresolved question, where are the dinosaurs? Moses would say, the text would say, well, it's very possible that the dinosaurs were in that, in the beginning time, in that heavens and earth time. Suns, moons, stars, solar systems, all of these things were created. They were made Ex nihilio, out of nothing, God did all of this in the beginning. Number four, by way of introduction this morning in review, Genesis 1, verse 2, through chapter 2. So Genesis 1, 1, God creates everything. Everybody following that? The big argument of John Salehammer 
is that in Genesis 1, verse 2, through chapter 2, the text changes direction. Moses is no longer describing the creation of the universe or the creation of the whole globe, the earth. That's already been done in Genesis 1-1. That's already been done completely in Genesis 1-1. Now Moses is, to his readers, pointing them to God preparing the Garden of Eden. And the Garden of Eden is actually the promised land. Let me say it one more time. Genesis 1-2, God now focuses his attention on the land, particularly in the Middle East, known as the promised land. And here, it is first and foremost created, it is prepared, it is cultivated as a garden that God is going to put his people in place in to live in covenant union with him. This six-day period of time, or this seven-day period of time, is not the creation of all things. That was done in Genesis 1.1. But what Moses is doing is he's describing a six-day period of time where God prepares a particular people, Adam, human, human, Adam. That's what all those words mean in Hebrew. And Eva, Eve, source of life. God is preparing a unique people, different from the rest of creation that he made in the beginning. Because everything was made in the beginning with the exception of these, these unique image bearers. Adam and Eva. Human and humanus. Female and man. So God here in Genesis 1-2 through chapter 2, Moses is saying to the people in Israel, Look, he prepared a promised land. He prepared a garden, a cultivated fruitful place for us to delight in and live in and worship him in and relate to him in in the beginning. And it is a literal six day period. And what I love about Selhammer is he really scratches an itch that I have when it comes to reading the Bible. He lets the text determine what the text is meaning. And these words are literal one day connotations, the words that are translated day one, day two, so on and so forth. And then finally, by way of review this morning, It's so important, and this is going to launch us next week into the rest of our series for the next three weeks. Genesis 1 and 2 and 3. Genesis chapter 1, chapter 2, and chapter 3. They serve as an introduction to the rest of the Pentateuch. The Pentateuch is the first five books of the Bible. Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy. Originally, the Hebrews read all of those as one consistent book, one consistent narrative. And so Genesis is actually set up as an introduction to the rest of the themes that we will find interspersed all throughout the Pentateuch. And not only that, what I love about the Bible is that these themes that are set up in Genesis chapter 1 carry all the way through the first five books of the Bible, all through the books of history. The same themes, the same story carries all the way through all of the prophets, carries all the way through the Psalms and the Proverbs and Ecclesiastes and Songs of Solomon. The wisdom books carries all the way through the Gospels. Jesus becomes the fulfillment of the very themes that were set up in Genesis 1, chapter 2, chapter 3. All the way through the Pauline epistles as Paul picks up on these various themes and ideas set up in Genesis and in the Pentateuch. All the way through to the book of Revelation. And guess where the book of Revelation ends? Back in a garden. A restored garden city. 
So we're setting up this foundation to work from. Next week, we'll look at the theme of waters, and the various ways that it interweaves itself through the meta narrative of the whole Bible from Genesis to Revelation. The following weeks, we'll look at waters and wilderness together, and then we'll close our time in looking at the effects that these themes have on our particular souls. One of the amazing things to me as we develop this idea that this is a, a, an introduction to the whole of the Bible and the Pentateuch is Genesis 1 actually in the Hebrew is seven words. And I know that we shouldn't make a big deal out of that, but Hebrews did. From the very beginning, God is establishing a pattern. The very, very beginning line, God is establishing a pattern of six to seven, six to seven, six days of work, seven. Why? Because God is establishing from the beginning of creation that he is going to relate with us in covenants, in covenants. And this particular covenant that he's setting up that will really have its, its consummation at Sinai in the book of Exodus includes at its very pinnacle this important aspect of working for six days and then Shabbat, resting on the seventh day. This is why there is six days of work set up here in Genesis chapter one, work, so to speak, and a seventh day of rest. Moses is reminding his people as they get ready to go into the promised land that God from the very beginning would work with, love on, be in relationship with his people, Adam and Eve, in this six days of working, and in actuality, Genesis 2 is better, better translated, six days of worshiping, and on the seventh day, a complete separation unto God, resting, just as God did from in the beginning. One more facet of this before we move into Genesis 1, verse 2. Understand that the ancient Near Eastern culture, when they would read the account of Genesis 1, and they would see God resting on the seventh day. We as Westerners have no clue what's actually being said there. We ask the question, why would God rest? Doesn't the rest of the Bible say God doesn't need to rest? But to the ancient Near Eastern culture, they would all read that, whether they were Egyptian, whether they were Assyrian, they would all read that idea of God resting on the seventh day and they would say, oh, Moses is saying that the Garden of Eden is like a temple. Where God rests is where God relates to his people. So, the ancient Near Eastern cultures would build these temples and God would come to rest in the temple. God would come to settle in the temple and do his work of relating and loving and in pagan God situations, judging and crushing his people. Moses is saying here in Genesis chapter one, in this six day, seven day pattern, the Garden of Eden was a temple. Not like a temple made with bricks, but a temple, a meeting place where God would specifically come and meet with his people. He would rest with his people, walking in the cool of the garden with them. One final, final thing before we move on to verse two, because this sets up everything for next week. When we read that the earth was without form and void and darkness was over the face of the deep, these ideas carry all through the rest of the Bible. Water for us is a place to go splash in and play and have fun and sail our boats. For the ancient Hebrew, water was a place of darkness, fear, confusion, chaos, danger, and judgment. 
And so from the very beginning here, what Moses is setting up, what the Bible is setting up for us, is that God always is at work from the very beginning to bring us out of chaos, to bring us out of darkness, to bring us out of confusion, to bring us out from the deep by his spirit and settle us not in desolate places, but he's always bringing us to places and preparing for us places of cleanliness, cultivation, fruitfulness, satisfaction in relationship with him in this idea of him resting with us and in us as we now are what the church is the new temple, not made with stones, but we are the temple where God's presence has come to rest on us. And we are walking through the wilderness of this life on our way to the promised land, as we're going to discuss here in just a moment, set up from the very beginning, carrying from Genesis one all the way through to Genesis two. Let's look at verse two of Genesis chapter one, verse two of Genesis chapter one. So verse one, in the beginning, God creates what? God creates everything. Dinosaurs, skies, suns, moons, lands. He creates uh, saber-toothed tigers and dogs and cats and birds and bees. Everything excepting these, these image bearers. Verse two now, the attention turns to the earth as it's translated in our language, in our English Bibles. It is the Hebrew word, the Eretz. The Eretz. The Eretz was covered with this darkness. It was... It was under chaos and confusion. And that word Eretz there is best translated the land. And the argument that Salehammer makes and that I've become thoroughly persuaded of is that it is at this point now that Moses turns his attention and Genesis turns its attention to the preparation of the Garden of Eden, which is actually the preparation of a particular land. Why is Eretz in our English Bible translated earth? The reason for that is because we stick to tradition like sticklers. We all have traditions. And earth was the King James way of translating land. Oh, the earth is rich and vibrant this morning with the flowers of the field. King James type language. Oh, the heavens, they shine with the glory of God as the birds pass through the heavens above. King James language. And we have carried that through into our English translations But the best Hebrew translation of this, the land, the land, the particular land was without form and it was without inhabitable qualities is really where we're going to be going with this. It is used differently than verse one because it is not a merism. Land in verse two, very specifically in the text, is pointing us to a specific land that doesn't include everything as it did in verse one, where Moses uses that merism, skies and land, together. The word Eretz, arguing now that Moses is talking about the promised land, is the same word that's used throughout the rest of the Old Testament to refer to the promised land. This is the same word. And so Moses is very specifically using a singular word that's going to be pointing his readers to, oh, okay, well, it looks like now we're looking at, we're reading about the preparation of the land that God is going to give to us. Remember, Genesis was being read by a group of people that were getting ready to go into the promised land. So the same promised land is the same word that's being used here in Genesis 1. So the land was without form and without void. Interestingly enough, and we're not going to get into the details of this, but in Genesis chapter 2, for those of you that are familiar with Genesis chapter 2, there's this borders that are described, the the land is described as having borders delineated by certain rivers. 
uh, Pishon and, and various four different rivers, two of which are very mysterious. Nobody really knows which rivers they are. Sailhammer, of course, thinks he's discovered and knows which rivers they're referring to by using a bunch of different targums and interpretations from ancient Jews. And he argues, level of certainty on this, two, maybe three, but he argues that the same boundaries of the promised land laid out in the book of Joshua are the exact same river boundaries laid out in Genesis chapter 2. The argument is so compelling. It begins to make so much sense of what Genesis 1 is actually talking about. The whole point, arguing again and more, with more detail, that the land is actually the promised land, the whole point of the Sinai covenant is that God is going to give a particular land to an obedient people. And so here in Genesis 1, Moses is establishing that this gift of a prepared land was the case from the beginning. He's telling the Jews... This land, God prepared it from, for you from the very beginning. And it is the same land as the promised land that you're going to go in and take over. This land is always intended to be, the land was always intended to be, and the land was intended to be under the temple, a place of meeting between God and his people. What's fascinating to me here is in verse 2, the earth was without form and void and darkness was over the face of the deep. And you guys read there, it says the spirit, the spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters. Just as the spirit prepares a particular land, a meeting place for Adam and Eve. When we get to Exodus chapter 31, we're told there that the Israelites are to construct a tabernacle, a resting place for God to meet with them. And the first thing that we read of is the spirit filling two particular men, Bezalel and Oholiab, to build the right temple, to build the temple correctly. All through the rest of the text, what you see is that the Holy Spirit is there building the place where God will meet with his people. By the time we get to the New Testament, it's the day of Pentecost. The Holy Spirit comes and he forms a new people that will be his church, that will be his temple, his resting place, his dwelling place. Let's talk about without form and without void, because this is maybe one of the most mistranslated things in the entirety of the Bible. Formless and void, formless and void. Where we read there in verse 2, the earth was without form and void, we should read the land was without form and void. And rather than reading the, the land was out with, without form and void, it's better read the land was desolate and wild. The land was a wilderness. The land was unprepared. The land was uninhabitable. I want to talk here for just a moment about why these things have been mistranslated for so long. If we travel back through the history of translations, back to the early Greek era of history, when the Greeks, Ptolemy and various Greek astronomers and philosophers, they were trying to articulate how the cosmos had been made. And they had an idea that the cosmos had come out of this primordial ooze, this primordial goo, this kind of swath of material things that had just been disordered and chaotic and formation came through a process that they couldn't discern. That was a Greek cosmology. That was a Greek way of explaining how the cosmos came to be. When the 
Interpreters of the Hebrew text in this era came to Genesis 1, verse 2. They read the words, tohu wabohu. Tohu wabohu. Tohu wabohu. Interesting words. And they were trying to look at what science was saying, the science of their day. And they're looking at the Hebrew text. And they're reading tohu wabohu. And they're thinking, oh, well, it has the idea of desolation. It has the idea of disorder. Our Greek scientists are telling us that we came from a primordial kind of chaotic ooze. So the best way to line up the interpretation of tohu wabohu with what current science is saying is we need to translate that formless and void. Now, a group of ancient translators of the Hebrew text into Greek, uh, into a Greek Hebrew text that became called the Septuagint, they adopted this idea. And what we need to understand is that our translations from the ancient Greek era have been infused with our scientific cosmology. We come to tohu wabohu, which carries the idea of desolation, wildness, disorder, uninhabitable. And we say, well, science says that there was nothing, then there was a big bang. In fact, there are certain uh, cosmological theories that talk about us coming out of this primordial ooze and goo. Not only we as human beings, but the whole of, of the universe just came out of this disordered chaos. And so in the name of making sense of tohu wabohu in a scientific framework, in a Western framework in a cosmological framework that lines up with our current theories, we translate those words formless and void. Sailhammer nails the coffin down for me on this translation when he says that was not in the mind of Moses at all. In fact, if you look at the way that tohu wabohu is used throughout the rest of the Bible, it is most often translated desolate, Wild, uncultivated, uninhabitable. Moses is saying that in the beginning, God created everything. And at verse two, and our land, people of God, our land, it was desolate. It was wild in the beginning. It was uninhabitable. It was uncultivated. That is what Moses is saying to his people at this point. He is saying God was bringing us out of a wilderness place from the very beginning. That is the whole point of what is being laid out here. Now, one should ask the question, are there other interpreters that translated it this way? And absolutely, this is where the expertise of Salehammer becomes very important. He goes back and he reads ancient Jewish and ancient Semitic texts that go back before our Greek cosmologies. Listen to the way that ancient, ancient Hebrews would translate tohu wabohu, this idea of formless and void, desolate and empty. They would translate it this way. Follow and indistinct. In the beginning, the land was follow and indistinct. One early Jewish Targum actually elaborated on it and read this way. In the beginning, God created the skies and the land. And the land, the land, our land itself, was desolate without human beings or beasts and void of all cultivation of plants and trees. The ancient Hebrews understood what was being said here. And I think we as modern Western Americans should read this text and say, hey, It's talking about the promised land. It's talking about a particular place for a particular people. And that's going to point us to who we're going to be. For the rest of the Bible, the Bible highlights God's people being brought through darkness, guys. These themes carry through the rest of the Bible. For us to come into the promised land, that place of what is the promised land? 
The promised land is that place of peace. It's that place of God's provision. It's that place of God's security. But there is no way for us to get there apart from God preparing it for us. There's no way for us to overcome the desolation of our sin. The depths of the darkness of our rebellion against God. Apart from God preparing a way for us, a place for us. And he did that in Jesus and through Jesus and by Jesus. He did that completely for us. Now, very briefly, we're not going to spend any time on this. As badly as I know all of you would want to spend time on this. Verse 3 through 31 is not talking about creative order out of nothing. And again, we have to get back into the mind of the Hebrew narrator at this point. As we go down through the six days of the creation narrative, as, as it's commonly been called, we run into all sorts of problems if we think of it as a creative narrative of God creating things from nothing. For example, on day one, God says what? Let there be light. Now, we are Western scientists. Where does light come from in this world? Can anybody tell me where the earth receives its light from? Very good. Awesome. Astronomy 101, we've got it. The earth receives light from the sun. So on day one, God creates light. He says, let there be light. But there's this enigmatic, very difficult problem to overcome. By the time we get to day four, down in verse 14... Let there be lights in the expanse of the heavens to separate the day from the night and let them be for signs and for season for days for years. Let them be lights in the expanse of the heavens to give light upon the earth. And it was so. And God made the two great lights, the greater light to rule the day and the lesser light to rule the night and the stars. Oh, what? Wait, on day one, he creates light. But we know empirically in our Western mind frame, light comes from the sun. So then for like three days, and here's where we go as Western interpreters. Well, God created some source of source of light that wasn't from the sun or the stars. It was a supernatural. See, we have to do gymnastics with this text if we make it something that is creating specific things. Now, if we say in Genesis 1-1, the sun was already there. I don't have time this morning to get into the, the technical details of the Hebrew narrative here. Our English is well translated, but we've read it wrong for so long that this is like breaking through a brick wall in our interpretive structures. Just hear me clearly. In Genesis 1-1, God creates all the suns and all the stars. They're already there. And what Moses is describing here is not God in Genesis 1 saying, let there be light and light spontaneously comes. It's as if the poem is showing the beauty of God looking at his land and seeing his people and he's saying, I want there to be light on them. Let there be light. And the sun that has been there for maybe eons rises on the land, particularly prepared for a particular people. God says, let there be an expanse between the waters. Ancient Hebrews were looking at the blue sky saying, oh, there's a canopy of water over the top of us and there's water, blue water beneath us. And what day two is, is there's been an expanse, maybe for ages, maybe for a quadrillion years, maybe only for 60 seconds. We don't know. But God says, let that expanse be for the purpose of birds flying through the air. What God is doing and what Moses is describing here is God is, as they understood in the ancient Near Eastern culture, he is titling and he is naming, which in the ancient Near Eastern culture had creative connotations. If I gave to my son 
the name Joby, I had created him as Joby. I'd given him his function, his title, his purpose is to be as Joby. Joby already existed apart from a name. He was born and then I named him. The argument of not only John Salehammer, but many, many Hebrew exegetes of this text is increasingly honoring this form of narration. Where Genesis 1, God creates everything. Day 1, he names its purposes. I name light, and light will function as a good thing in the promised land for the people. Day 2, there's going to be an expanse between the heavens and the earth and the canopies of water. Which, by the way, that doesn't need to be a big canopy of water. That just needs to be clouds. If you're an ancient Near Eastern and you see water falling from the sky in the form of rain, why wouldn't you think that there was a canopy of water above you? It's just clouds. And God had already created clouds. And he says, let there be an expanse where the birds are going to be flying through that. And God says, let the waters be gathered into one place. They were already gathered. And he is now declaring these waters will be here. Which, by the way, waters in that case could have meant the Mediterranean Sea, could have meant the Dead Sea. In the Hebrew mind, waters and seas weren't these massive oceans. Just pools of water were considered and called seas. And so through Genesis, what we see him doing here is he is titling and calling this particular place, and he is appointing the particular functions, the functions of each of these creative realities that have already been in existence. At this point, we're done with the technical work in Genesis 1. Some of you are like, praise God. (laughs) What I want to do is I want to spend five minutes taking us to communion and setting up where we're going to be for the next three weeks. Whether you agree with anything I've said through these first two weeks in Genesis 1, it really doesn't matter because the meat of this series now we get into next week. At this point, let me just walk you through what has happened. Through an undetermined amount of time, God created everything that is. And in creating everything that is, he introduced, he produced, he prepared a specific land for a specific people. Adam and Eva. Adam and Eve. The first human man and the first humanness woman. He creates them. He fashions them. He forms them uniquely as image bearers. They, you, me, us, We are different than all of creation. He puts them in this prepared land where he said, let light shine, where he had appointed stars to tell the day by, where he had appointed the moons to tell the months by, where the birds fly through the expanse, where the great creatures swim through the oceans and through the seas and through the pools of water. They flourish and he puts them in this place to let them thrive, to let them experience fullness of joy. And they experience that fullness of joy in perfect relationship with their creator. And all was well. And throughout the text of Genesis 1 and Genesis 2, what God says there is it is good. 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 God also allowed in this creative space and place the latent possibility for disobedience. For us to be image bearers, that is to be like God, we would have to be able to choose to love God, obey God. Our identity would be wrapped up in our worship of God, our surrender to God, our submission to God. 
And God wrapped up in Adam and Eve. He wrapped up in them the latent possibility of disobedience. We don't know where the talking snake comes from. He's just there. It's the lingering question that wakes me up at four in the morning. Why the snake? Why why has he got to be there? We don't know. The fact is, you and I, Adam and Eve, are bitten by him. We all are bitten by this snake. We're all deceived by this snake. Meaning, God had prepared all of us for this perfect place of love and relationship with him. But instead, we believed a lie. That there's a better place to be. That not only are we to reflect God, but we believed the lie that we should be God ourselves. That we could prepare our own promised land. That we could cultivate our own fruit trees. That we could go our own way and define ourselves any way we want. Ethnically, economically, sexually. We can do what we want. This is the story of Adam and Eve partaking of that tree of knowledge of good and evil. Eating it. That apple. From the moment that they partook of it, you and I all are born into that separated place from the promised land, from that place of cultivation and fruitfulness and a sense of peace. We are born naked and guilty and ashamed, separated from that original garden state. Throughout the rest of the Bible, we see God working his rescue mission slowly, tenderly, carefully. We'll look at the flood next week where God says the way that we're going to start this whole thing over is we're going to wipe it all out and the waters come back. It's a recreation story where God says we're starting over and he wipes out everything with the exception of one, one man who was found righteous in his eyes. We meet Abraham later on in the Genesis narrative and who's Abraham. Abraham is going to be the patriarch, the father through whom all the lands will be blessed through whom all peoples outside of God's particular chosen people, they will all be blessed by Abraham. Why? Because Abraham's going to live in covenant union and he's going to be given a promised land as a particular people to live in. We see them go and they, they take over the land and the promised land. And then what happens? They, they want to be like the world and they let the world come back in. That snake continues to bite them. So rather than living in that promised land as a covenant people, light of God shining on them. Darkness has been cast aside. They instead allow the snake to bite them in their hearts again. And they say, we want a king like all the other nations. We want a promised land of our own making. We want to live the way that we want to live. And God warns them through the prophets over and over and over. Please don't do this. You're cutting off your feet. You're separating yourself from me again. You're, you're, the temple that I've given you to live in relationship with, you're mocking it and you're, you're, you're disowning it and you're disregarding it and it's only going to bring hurt to you. And sure enough, where are they cast out to? In, seven, in the 700s BC and in 586 BC, they are cast back into the wilderness. The prophets had warned and warned and warned. Don't adopt the ways of this world. Don't create your own promised land. It's going to make you desolate. It's going to... Flood your heart with wickedness and depression and hurt and shame and guilt. And sure enough, 586 BC, God starts over. And he sends them back to the wilderness. Back to, Jeremiah says of all things, back to, how, how ominous does this sound? Back to Tohu Wabohu. <laughs> Who wants to go back to Tohu Wabohu? I don't. But they go. 
And yet God, through the ages, displaying his glory to angels and demons and to all the world, says, I'm not done. And even there in Tohu Wabohu, in the land that is desolate, in the land that is wild, God prepares a place for them. And when we get to Matthew chapter 1, Mark chapter 1, Luke chapter 1, John chapter 1, a new creation begins. In the beginning was the Logos, the Word. And the Word was God, and the Word was with God. Into the wilderness, into the desolate, into the tohu wabohu, comes the new creation, Jesus himself. And what does he do? He goes into the waters. He takes on the chaotic waters of our baptism, fulfilling all righteousness, and he is raised out, the Lamb of God slain for our rebellion. He comes out, the first fruits of what? New creation. We now are his particular people in covenant union under a new covenant because Jesus lives as the second Adam, the one who messed it up in the garden. Jesus comes as the one who says, I will live in full union with God. My identity will be found by God and in God and through God. I will trust God, my father, perfectly. I will be empowered by the Holy Spirit and I will do it in the place of my people who right now are tohu wabohu. They are, they are desolate. Jesus is buried. He rises. He now reigns and rules where he is awaiting what? The reestablishment of Genesis 1. A garden community of people. And he fills us with the Holy Spirit. He makes us new where we are reinstated in that right place where rather than the waters of chaos and darkness governing our hearts, we are what? 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 17. Made new creations in Jesus Christ. The temple now is you and I. The spirit dwells in you. Do you not know that you yourself are a temple of the Holy Spirit? We all think, yes, the Holy Spirit dwells in my heart. That's true. But when Paul is saying that, he's saying the temple is you, us together. We are the dwelling place of God in this world. And here's the linchpin that takes us to mission as we wrap this up. Clear back in Genesis 1, 2, and 3, when God puts Adam and Nebuchadnezzar, Adam and Eve into the garden. He says, I want you to go and subdue the land. Already in Genesis 1, 2, and 3, there's something wrong in the rest of the world. And God is telling Adam and Eve, I'm putting you here to go out and be a blessing to the rest of the world, to subdue it, to cultivate the rest of the world. From the very beginning, God's intent through his chosen people was to go out and subdue and cultivate and bring fruitfulness and bring the kingdom on earth as it is in heaven. And we now, all these millennia later, filled with the Holy Spirit, the byproducts of Noah and Abraham and King David and King Jesus, regenerate, filled with his spirit, we now are a restored garden state. Not completely, obviously not. We are totally jacked. But The Holy Spirit is in us. We are the first fruits of resurrection kingdom. And what are we commanded to do? Go and make disciples. What is going and making disciples that is going out into this world, subduing it, cultivating it? We are the inbreaking and the breaking of. We are the the fresh waters going out into the tohu wabohu, out into the wilderness of this world to bear fruit. And what's coming for us as we go to communion this morning? is Tohu Wabohu is going to take each of you to your grave. The waters of death will have you. Why? Because 
just like Adam and Eve were promised, when we separate from God, the only results that can come from that are separation of life and spirit, and we die. But when we are flooded with death, and when Tohu Wabohu ultimately takes us to the ultimate wilderness of, of a deathbed, we have the promise of the resurrection, we have the promise of the Holy Spirit, we have the promise of faith that God will what? His spirit will be over that dark, flooded grave, that desolate place. And just as he parted the seas from the land and prepared that place for his people, he will part the dirt. And you're going to rise. You and I are going to live forever in a garden state. This whole world will be renewed and restored. He wins. You win. I win. Put a smile on your face this morning. It's, it's, it's the story of the Bible. Genesis 1 to Revelation 22. And here's how Revelation ends. Behold, he comes quickly. Pray, repent, trust, love, be thankful that we're done with all the technical nerdy stuff. We'll get into this in depth next week. Let me pray for us. Father, as we go to communion this morning, the story of the Bible is, is really so beyond our scope of understanding when we, when, we miss, when we miss the great and grand narrative. As we go to communion this morning, I'm praying that for the, the couple that comes in here this morning and they feel like there's desolation in their marriage, there's emptiness and there's hurt. God, you want to restore that. You want to bring out of that joy and cultivation. For the single in here this morning that just flooded with an overwhelming sense of hurt and fear. Lord, some of these kids are out on the campuses of our colleges and they're in their high schools and they are working with their friends and they love Jesus. But their ideas, the, the beliefs that they have are so different than their friends. And I pray that this morning, right now, they would just have that sense that from the very beginning, from the very beginning, you created them special and particularly unique. You have a promised land that you are preparing for them. And that, that wilderness place is that place of testing and humbling. And I pray that as they take communion, they would be reminded that you went to the ultimate wilderness for them. You came into the wilderness. You were baptized for them in their death. You rose Lord, strengthen them to see outside of this world. Strengthen all of us to see that, that this desolate place, Lord, we are here to make it cultivated and fruitful. Our desolate and flooded workplaces that are dark and chaotic, we are in that place as the inbreaking, the overcoming of Tahu Wabo, Adam, Neva, human, humanists, image bearers, of a great creator. And I am praying that in their obedience to you and submission to you, not because they merit anything, but because they surrender to Jesus, that the desolation would be overcome with cultivation, that the flood waters would be dried and separated and that places of fruitfulness and joy would abound in homes, in marriages, in neighborhoods, in workplaces, in hearts. In the beginning, God created you. Come to communion this morning with that overwhelming sense of his valuing you, your worth, his grace, and sending his son for you. Sing his praises. 
surrender to him more fully than you ever have and be welcomed into this community of grace and love and goodness. Let's all stand.